From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe again from you. Hi, this is Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Postal Supervisors, and welcome to this week's edition of Naps Chat. Today, we are privileged to have Congressman Jamie Raskin as our guest. Congressman Raskin is a member of the House Rules Committee. He serves as vice chair of the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution. He is a member of the House Oversight and Reform Committee on Government Operations. And he is also a vice chair of the House Committee on Administration, which has jurisdiction over elections. And I should just add, the Subcommittee on Government Operations has jurisdiction over the Postal Service. Congressman Raskin is also, or in his history, he has also been a constitutional law professor at American University, and he served in the Maryland State Legislature and was a proponent of no-excuse absentee balloting and vote-by-mail while a representative in the Maryland Legislature. Congressman Raskin, welcome to this week's edition of NAPS Chat. Bob, I am delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. Congressman Raskin, we start with a fundamental question. Is there a constitutional right to vote in this country? After all, there is no mention of voting in the U.S. Constitution or its Bill of Rights. Well, you're right. I mean, it's a it's a hard question. It should be an easy question. I mean, we should be able to say with almost everybody else on the earth that there is an explicit constitutional right to vote, but we don't exactly have that. What we have is kind of a ragtag series of ad hoc anti-discrimination amendments in voting. So, you know, the 15th Amendment says that you can't discriminate on the basis of race, and the 19th Amendment says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, and uh, the 23rd Amendment gives people in D.C. the right to participate in presidential elections, and the 24th Amendment says you can't discriminate in voting based on poll tax, but nowhere do you get an explicit universal affirmative right for everybody to vote at every level of government and to be represented. And that's why we still have millions of people who are left out, like former prisoners in a whole bunch of states who still have not been uh, reenfranchised. People in Washington, D.C. are not represented in Congress, people in Puerto Rico and so on. So I think that we have a fundamental right to vote in the sense that if you live in a state, the Equal Protection Clause does give you the right to vote against an unjust deprivation. But as we've seen in every election that we've ever had, you've got to fight for that right to vote, and there's always somebody ready to take it away from you. One of my favorite quotes is from a, uh, a Supreme Court decision dating back to 1964, which states, and I think it's Westbury versus Sanders, that all other rights are illusory. That means there are illusions if the right to vote is undermined. In this era of a pandemic, and there were efforts to suppress voting or restrict the modes of voting because of, you know, in, in, in light of the pandemic, are our other rights in jeopardy because of that deprivation? Absolutely. I think that quote goes back to a case called Yikwo versus Hopkins, you know, which said that all other rights are illusory if you don't have the right to vote first, because it Every other right can be taken away from you if you're not represented, if you don't have somebody fighting for you in the legislative assemblies. And it was in the 1960s in those one person, one vote cases, Westbury versus Sanders, Reynolds versus Sims, 
where the court said you can't have this absurd lopsided gerrymandering of congressional and state legislative districts. So you've got a million people in one district and 100,000 people in the next district, which means if you're in the smaller district, your vote is 10 times more potent than your vote than the vote of somebody in the larger district. You know, so the court there said there's got to be equal population. And that's where we get a lot of the great rhetoric about how fundamental and ineradicable the right to vote is. But in every election we see, and we're seeing it right now in the attack in on mail-in uh, balloting and the attack on absentee balloting, there's always an effort to try to cheat large numbers of people out of the right to vote in order to guarantee a particular partisan outcome. Now, as a member of that Committee on House Administration, you recently participated in a hearing over the impact of the pandemic on the voting process. Let me ask you this. Are there any takeaways that you have from that hearing about something that you learned at that hearing that you didn't really understand before or the impact that uh, the pandemic has on voting? Well, you know, the election experience in Wisconsin was an absolute debacle, and that should be the negative example of what everybody wants to avoid. The governor of Wisconsin tried to do what the governor did in my state and many other governors did, which was to postpone the date of the election and then to dramatically expand the uh, the mail-in voting at home option. So you vote at home and you mail it in. But the uh, governor of Wisconsin was overruled by a Republican-dominated state Supreme Court who commanded uh, the governor to go ahead with the election right in the middle of the pandemic. Dozens of polling places never even opened because they couldn't get any poll workers to attend them. And I think there were three or four polling places open in the entire city of Milwaukee. So you would be huge lines of people wrapped around many city blocks. And I think they traced more than 65 or 70 cases of COVID-19 to these conditions of people packed into the election precincts that were actually open, people waiting in line and so on. So look, the the mail-in option is something that is very well established in a whole bunch of states that dramatically increases turnout in states like Oregon and Utah. People have always uh, had an absentee ballot going back, I think, to the Civil War. And uh, President Trump himself has used mail-in balloting in both New York and Florida. So there's nothing at all strange about it, except that one party is always afraid of a larger electorate. They don't want more people participating. And so they're doing everything that they can to sandbag mail-in balloting and to attack the post office in the process. What's interesting about this whole uh, exercise is that the Postal Service is the most trusted entity in the country. In fact, there was a Harris poll that was released last week, which found the Postal Service was the most essential company in the wake of the pandemic, followed by number two by the Clorox Corporation. What do you think this is about? Why do you think the Postal Service and alleged problems with vote by mail by waged by the president, sort of the, it's sort of like this uh, confluence of two different issues that should be uh, a no-brainer no in this uh, pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's the obvious thing from the standpoint of both getting maximum participation and also protecting the health of the 
of the population. I mean, we, we should not be giving people a choice between either exercising their ballot or protecting the health of their families. We, we have a very obvious solution here. And I, I just think it's scandalous that the president has tried to complicate it. But you're absolutely right about the standing of the post office. I mean, people love the post office. And this goes back to the beginning of the republic with Benjamin Franklin and the fact that, you know, all of the major roads and thoroughfares were named Post Road and, you know, Postal Road and all the newspapers were named like the Washington Post and the Daily, you know, tail Telegraph and all those things. You know, people understood the way that it was the post office that unified the communications networks and the transportation networks of the country. And we, you know, a lot of people think that maybe that's obsolete or old fashioned. But I tell you, during the COVID-19 crisis, the post office has been an absolute lifeline for so many people who otherwise would not be able to get the stuff that they're ordering, would not be able to you know, stay in touch with their employers and on and on and on. So uh, the post office remains just a central lifeblood to the country. And that lifeblood was sort of we, we reinvigorated if uh, the Postal Service came through and was the conveyor of ballots and dovetails very nicely with the birth of our democracy and the maturity of our democracy. Well, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the, the post office is well trusted and well respected. And we know that if we do the proper funding, everything is going to be fine. It will be able to guarantee the security and the stability and the integrity of this election. So, you know, in the first CARES Act, we uh, advanced a request for $4 billion to be distributed to the states for the purposes of instituting vote-by-mail mechanisms if they didn't already have it. Uh, the Senate didn't want to spend any money on it, so we arrived at the compromise figure of $400 million, but that was 10% of what we know is needed. And so in the HEROES Act, we just passed, which the Senate has not taken up yet, we uh, reinstated the other $3.6 billion. But we need to get that money out quickly because the clock is ticking in terms of the ability of states that don't already have mail-in voting to get contracts to make it happen. I mean, uh, November is just not that far away in terms of pulling off a, a very big function like that. Yeah, because it's not only the actual mailing of the ballot, it's the printing of the ballot and assuring that you get the right ballot to the right uh, election authorities. And that takes time and that takes resources on the part of not only the state election authorities, but the folks, the vendors who are going to run, who are going to prepare the material for the election. Exactly right. So, look, this, like everything else during this period, we can either continue to follow the road of degradation and division and end up in hell and uh, have fighting, or this could be the grounds for unifying the country and saying we're going to have, you know, a national mail-in ballot option in every state. We're going to make it possible for everybody to vote. It will be safe. It will be healthy. And we're going to make it work and it's going to be clean and we're going to have integrity. Or we can simply be dragged down in a whole bunch of conflict and skirmishes over, you know, various crises, both real and fictionalized. One of the interesting data points that I found, and I mentioned it on a previous NAPS chat, was that the Electronic Registration Information Center, there are folks who look at allegations of fraud in elections, among other things, and they found 
only 372 possible cases of double voting or voting on behalf of a deceased person out of 14.6 million votes cast by mail in the 2016 and 2018 general election, which amounts to 0.0025%. That is infinitesimal in terms of allegations of fraud. And I think that even the Heritage Foundation, which is a big critic of vote by mail, has not found any evidence of or pattern of fraud in elections, particularly mail-in ballots. Gotcha. I mean, what do we do? What do we do? To, because because the, the, the president is alleging that vote by mail or no excuse absentee ballots or sending everyone who's registered to vote uh, an, a ballot or folks who are fearful in the state of Texas, people who are fearful of contracting uh, COVID-19 want a ballot, saying, no, deny it to them. I mean, how do we respond to that? Well, look, the, the, the truth is, that everybody knows that the best way to steal an election in America is to run an election. And the people who we have to fear are like Catherine Harris from 2000, who doubled as the secretary of state overseeing the election and the head of the Bush campaign. And it's the people who are managing the elections who are a real threat to the integrity of the election if they're not committed to an honest count of the ballots. And the, the tiny, as you say, infinitesimal number of cases where somebody tries voting twice or voting for a deceased person are just trivially insignificant and tiny, and it's against the law. I mean, the only cases I've heard of were basically where Republicans were doing that. People were trying to vote for Trump more than once, and I think that they were caught. Uh, there's one, I mean, pathetic case of a woman in Texas who voted illegally. I think she was a non-citizen and she was so hyped up on Donald Trump that she went out and voted and ended up being sentenced to prison for like six or seven years. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a terrible thing, but it's extremely rare. It's already against the law. And so it should not be used in any way as a pretext for denying people the right to vote safely in 2020. If we mandated, if, if there was not made available um, absentee balloting or vote by mail, we would expose, pot potentially expose poll workers who tend to be older than the general public to possible COVID infection. Uh, we run long lines of, of community contracting, community contraction of the COVID-19 and so forth for the integrity of the election to generate Voter participation is one aspect of it, but also protect the public health should be another. Well, of course, I mean, you know, the, all of these governors, Republican and Democrat alike, you know, have issued executive orders, either banning assemblages of more than 10 people or compelling masking and social distancing and so on in indoor spaces. You know, every public health expert and authority in the world is saying the same thing. This is just a dangerous way to go. So why would we choose that over giving people the opportunity to walk to their corner mailbox and drop the ballot in the in the mailbox? It just doesn't make any sense. Look, I, I think that we should maintain the option of in-person voting. There are people who want to do it, but it's got to be safe. And we've got to make sure we are observing all the best public health protocols so we're not uh, you know, spreading a disease, which... You know, the president seems to have completely forgotten about it, doesn't talk about it anymore, even though 
more than 117,000 of our people are dead because of it, and we're the, we're the world's leader in the case count and in the death count. Now, we're around five months from the election. What ought we be doing to make sure that our states, because we have uh, listeners in every state in the union, uh, basically listening to you right now, what ought we do to ensure that we are able to vote and we are not forced to choose between our health and the right to vote for the next congressman, president, senator, or local legislator? Well, I certainly hope if people agree that they should talk to their members of Congress and their senators about the fundamental importance of really providing the funding for the state to uh, have the, the voting at home mail-in option. But I think that uh, you know there are so many ways that elections can go wrong these days, and there are so many ways that you know the vote can be suppressed and repressed and depressed that you, you need to go state by state, work with those groups like the League of Women Voters, like Common Cause, you know, that are fighting for fair elections with real integrity to combat any threats that you see in your state. And they can come from anywhere. I mean, as we saw in 2016, a major threat came from abroad, came from, you know, Vladimir Putin's repeated projects of trying to interfere with public opinion, interfere and uh, hack the DNC, uh, hack Hillary Clinton's computers, you know, get into the DCCC and on and on and on. All of that is interference with an election. So we have to try to uh, protect it at the federal level and protect it at the state and local level from those old fashioned threats of, you know, uh, purging the purging the voter rolls. Uh, challenging people at the rolls false at the polls falsely, and uh, other efforts to you know publish misleading information about the date of the election and so on. One of the things that really troubled me in this recent, in the I guess it was the primaries that occurred two weeks ago, was that in Georgia you it was a debacle. There were long lines that peop, that the uh, absentee ballot program was not effectively rolled out. And the evidence is just, you know, the, it was evidenced by the long lines that extended way into the night. On the other hand, you had the state of Iowa, which ran very smoothly a vote-by-mail abs- widespread absentee ballot election, went extraordinarily smoothly. However, because of the politicization of the process, now the Iowa legislature and Iowa, I think, governor is thinking of uh, rolling back vote-by-mail because it ran so effectively. Well, and I think that's probably the best note for me to close on, Bob. The opponents of uh, mail-in voting are not afraid of its weaknesses and its failures. They're afraid of its success. They're afraid that we could have a 10-point or 20-point increase in voting because it obviously improves people's ability to vote simply by receiving the ballot at home and then being able to mail it in. I mean, you know, Election Day is not a holiday in America, so for the average working person who's got to get the kids off to school and then get to work and spend the day at work. I mean, you've got an hour and a half or maybe two hours at the end of the day where you might be able to get there in long lines and traffic jams and all those kinds of things. So we make voting difficult, but mail-in balloting makes voting simple and it makes voting far more accessible. That's why people are opposing it. Congressman, thank you for joining me on this week's edition of NAPS Chat. Please stay healthy and please stay safe. 
With that, till next week. I'm going to send right down and write myself a letter.